Welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming this evening. And we'll get started here for all of you who are anybody who's streaming. And we have notes. If you, has everybody got the notes over there on the counter? And, uh, and I send out notes to everyone each week. So if you're at home, you've got those along with uh, the slides normally. So let's have a word of prayer and then we'll begin tonight. Our Heavenly Father, we're so grateful again for this uh, privilege of prayer that we can come now in your presence and ask for your grace and help for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds to uh, cause us to reflect carefully and thoughtfully on the words we study and read tonight uh, from the Word of God. So give us understanding and, and we pray that your Spirit will do His work in our hearts to convict and teach and train and all the things that he, only He can do to bring about our growth, maturity, our sanctification so that we might be those who are, live lives that are pleasing to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're finishing up chapter 13. Uh, we're in the Upper Room Discourse, uh, chapters 13 and 14. And we are in chapter 13, as we see on our uh, chart here, timeline, uh, our chapter line. And as we've been now, we're in the final week of Jesus' life. Um, this is now we're actually in the night before his crucifixion. So we're in uh, uh, the, the night of the Passover. This is the Passover. He is, has instituted, uh, of course, the Gospels, the Synoptics go into this in more detail, all that was said and done and so forth. But he's instituting what becomes in the church the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, uh, which is uh, you know, ta a takeoff, obviously, of Passover, the Jewish Passover. And so what we saw uh, in the first part of the chapter was the washing of the disciples' feet. And we said the, the lesson we were learning there was about uh, cleansing, spiritual cleansing. That was symbolic of the cleansing of salvation, but also... You know, Jesus says those who have had a bath only need to have their feet washed, which suggests that there is a need for a daily cleansing or a cleansing of sanctification uh, to deal with sin that we deal with on a daily basis so that we can live lives that are pleasing to Christ. Uh, and so <clears throat> that was the actual physical washing. Now we in 18 through 30, we see Jesus identifies the betrayer here. Uh, Jesus is in the upper room, remember, and we don't know where that upper room is at in Jerusalem, but many have suggested this part of the city, the southern part uh, of the city, the old city of Jerusalem. Um, and uh, so that's somewhere in that area, but we don't know exactly, exactly for sure. Uh, 
we saw the uh, prediction in verses 18 through 21. This is where Jesus says, uh, he says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know who I'm chosen, but uh, then he talks about uh, he who shared my bread is turned against me and so forth. Um, so he, he's, he's identifying, he's going to identify the betrayer here uh, in verses 18 through 21. Um, there is somebody who's going to betray him. Of course, we know it's Judas, but they have no idea. And so uh, he says, and finally in verse 21, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And that's a shock. So in verses 22 through 26, there's some questioning going on. Uh, naturally, they say, you know, you know, is it me? Who is it? Uh, you know, um, they, 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 they stare at one another. They're at a loss, we're told in the text, to know what Jesus could have meant by that. And Simon Peter asked John to ask Jesus, who is close to him, you know, who is this betrayer? And Jesus said, it's the one that I dipped this piece of bread. And he gave it to Simon, Judas Iscariot. Judas, son of Simon, is, Simon Iscariot. Um, and then we see this command in verses 27 through 30. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. So it was after the morsel had been given to Judas that Satan entered into him. Judas once more had rejected our Lord's overture to him, as this seems to have been the final surrender of his will to Satan. So Jesus says, you know, what you're about to do, do quickly. So, you know, since Judas' treachery is complete, he might as well, you know, get it done. Go ahead and carry out your treachery. Uh, let it be done now. Verse 28, but no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had, sh had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival. In other words, there was a Passover, uh, and then there was a festival of unleavened bread, a seven-day festival afterward. And so uh, some thought, well, he's going out, giving him, telling the, the treasurer to go out and buy some things we need for the next week for the festival. Uh, what was needed for the festival, or maybe give something to the poor. You know, there's some reason he's sending him out. And as soon as Judas, verse 30, had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. And John uses these kind of double entendres, double things, you know. It was, it was night physically, but it's night, really night spiritually too, isn't it? Uh, but no one, uh, 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 verse uh, I say under that, uh, Christ's command for Judas uh, was, uh, I already said that, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so um, I say here, uh, variously interpreted, uh, some thought the festival of unleavened bread, others thought it was you know, benevolence. Um, so, so though John, John obviously knew, or he should have known, he, Jesus said, you know, the one I dip the morsel to, give the morsel to, that's the, that's the one I'm going to betray. Um, though John, you know, obviously knew that, uh, it was, he had identified Judas, uh, you know, apparently he didn't understand then that it would be done that very night. You know, he just says, he's going to betray me, but is it going to happen that very night? 
Judas left at once. And uh, it suggests that the text says here they didn't even, you know, I guess John was part of this too. He didn't know. He couldn't, he didn't know right now that was going to be what Judas was doing. But it was, of course. Then we, when we see number three here, uh, the new commandment, verses 31 through 38. Uh, when he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. With the departure of Judas, uh, Jesus could speak more intimately with the disciples. It is almost as if now that Judas has gone, the last barrier to the onset of the impending hour has been removed. Remember, Jesus talked about my hour. My hour has not yet come. Now it's come. The departure of Judas puts the actual machinery of arrest, trial, and execution into motion. As troubling as that was, this was the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Um, so, John will talk about uh, the Son of Man being glorified a number of times. And the greatest moment of, John, of this glorification is the shame of the cross. He says, it's time for the Son of Man. Now the Son of Man is glorified. It's coming. It's here now. And that really involves the Christ. Remember, we talked about the Son of Man before, and we said this was Jesus' title that he chose to identify himself and fill it with the messianic ideas he wanted to convey about the Messiah's first advent here. And, he, and it, we think it comes from like Daniel uh, 7, 13, and 14, where Daniel sees this vision, one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days, which is the Father, led into His presence. And He's given this dominion, you know, ultimately. Well, that's coming. That's coming. So uh, Jesus uses this title, Son of Man, uh, which is first mentioned here in... Uh, uh, What's well, first mentioned in John in chapter 1, verse 51. We, that was a long time ago we talked about John 1, 51. And I'm bringing it up here again. It's mentioned here... Uh, in the synoptics, it's frequently associated with his suffering. Uh, we're going up to Jerusalem, Mark 10, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered unto the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Um, so we have these elements brought together. Uh, his coming to the cross, his suffering, but ultimately, this is his glorification uh, because he will, be, he will be killed, he will die, he'll be resurrected, ultimately he'll send back to heaven, uh, Philippians 2. Uh, John 8, so Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and I am, that I do nothing of my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. And when I'm lifted up from earth. So that lifting up... <laughs> Has a, you know, again, that kind of a double idea. He's lifted up. He's going to be exalted. But that lifting up is the cross, ultimately. Now, of course, it doesn't look like it to the disciples. They, it looks like defeat. <laughs> and, you know, the best we can understand about Satan mind, Satan's mind, he thought it was defeat for the Son of God. I mean, he thought we got him. We got him on the cross. He's, you know, we got, we, we, I've accomplished my task. I'm sure he thought... This was, this was good. This was what he was trying to do. 
Um, so, um, so this phrase, the glorification of the sun that we'll see throughout here is kind of a, you know, you might call it a euphemism for events related to the crucifixion, you know, and in, in the sense that it sounds good, but it's really about something bad, you know. You know what a euphemism is? A euphemism is um, an expression you use uh, so that you want to, you don't want to talk about something very sad and harsh and delicate or, you know, like you say, someone passed away. You don't say they died. You say someone passed away because, you know, it's just, it's the euphemism. It means they, they, they died actually. Or, you know, someone comes into the building, they, we, we, they might say, where's the restroom? Well, they're not looking to rest. <laughs> they're looking for the toilet, but they don't usually say, where's the toilet at? They say, where's the restroom? Or where's the men's room? Or where's the ladies' room? You know, these are euphemisms, ways of, rather than speaking more directly, more kind of crudely and all that kind of thing. So here, this is uh, similar in the sense of, uh, this is really a very harsh and, and awful thing in a way, humanly speaking. He's going to be crucified. In a wicked by wicked people, and on the cross and all that. But ultimately, it's really glory, in the sense that of what this will ultimately accomplish um, for us and for the program of God. Verse thirty-three, my little children. Here's the commandment. Um, well, it come in verse thirty-four. My little children, I will be with you a little, only a little longer. You will, you will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. So having mentioned his impending glorification, Jesus embarks on one of the dominant things of this discourse, his concern to prepare his disciples for his departure. Um, this separation had been announced previously to the Jews, um, you know, at the, back in chapter 7, uh, at the festival of the tabernacles um, in chapter 7 and chapter 8. He had talked about he's going to depart and so forth. I'm going away. You can't follow me. Um, so the disciples have got to come to grips with this departure. He's talked about it. He's said it. And when he talked about it specifically about his death, remember Peter says, no, this will never happen to you, Lord. We're not, you know, this, is not, this is not in the program. So uh, he's trying to prepare them for the what's coming, you know, his death on the cross, which is, you know, it's, it's hard for us, well, we, we can grasp how wicked it is, but, you know, it's only the most despised people in the world who were crucified by the Romans. You really had to be a pretty bad guy to be crucified, you know. You had to be a bad guy to be put in the electric chair, you know. I mean, <laughs> that, that compare the electric chair to crucifixion, you know, we wouldn't, we don't really think about somebody who's been electrocuted as somebody to be admired or something. You know, so it looks outwardly very bad. It looks really bad, crucifixion. It just looks terrible. How can this be to our Lord and so forth? Uh, so they've got to come to grips with it. And, uh, you know, that's going to be caused by his death, his departure, and they cannot come. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Now later he'll say, you can come later. They will come eventually. When they die, they'll go to heaven. They can come but not immediately. Verse 34, a new command I give you, 
love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So there's various marks of discipleship. In 1 John, John will give some more, you know. But one of the ones he gives there is to love the brethren, love the love fellow Christians. You know, he gives others, but Jesus gives the command right here. This is a new command. I say here, now that Jesus has announced his departure and insisted that his disciples cannot now come with him, he begins to lay out what he expects of them while he is away. Jesus announced a new command in which they were instructed to love one another. The new command is not new because nothing like it has ever been said before. Leviticus 19.18 commanded the Israelites to love your neighbor as yourself. So this was a command in the Old Testament. Love, you know, love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, but there's a sense in which it is new. Uh, when you talk about the word new in Greek and in English, <laughs> new can mean new chronologically, new in time, but it can also mean new in kind, a new kind of thing. Just this week, I, I forgot who it was now, but I, somebody was discussing, I heard their conversation, they said, I got a new car. I got a new car. And I'm trying to think of myself, Man, today, you know, I don't think this person plunked down $30,000. You know, this is, this is not the person I thought. Well, of course, what they mean is new to them. You know, I got a new car. I got rid of my older car, and I got a new car. You know, uh, when Pastor Ken tells me he's got a new car, you know, that means it's only 10 years old. <laughs> but, you know, so there's... New in kind. It's new. It's new to them. It's new in kind. Uh, and there's new chronologically, you know, a new car. So, uh, so uh, that's what we have here. We have new in kind. It's the Greek word that means. So in Jesus' I maybe you a new car, a new, I don't mean brand new, never heard of on the face of the earth, but it's new in kind. It's different because the newness is found in the standard by which this is to be determined and judged. He says, you should love one another as I have loved you. Now, that's a very difficult standard to live up to, isn't it? That's, you know, it's one thing to say, love one another in a general way, but love you as I have loved you. Um, and so they're going to see the greatest illustration of this love when Jesus goes to the cross for them. Uh, a love which sought the good of its objects, which, you know, that's what we think of as love, seeking the good of its object, uh, sacrificing himself to achieve a greater good. And uh, so he, he wants them to display that kind of love. That's going to mark you as my disciples, if you have that kind of love for one another. Verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter answered, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Jesus has announced his departure and has insisted that his disciples cannot now come with him and has laid down what he expects of them while he is away, this new commandment. However, they are not 
that interested in the new commandment. Instead, they are still troubled by Jesus' insistence that his departure is imminent. And so Peter interrupt, interrupts and presses the point. The self-confident Peter was certain he was ready to follow Jesus anywhere and would offer his own life if necessary. So Peter obviously fails, you know, to understand the enormous implications of Jesus, what Jesus is saying here, and to recognize his own inadequate capabilities. He's very brash, very arrogant here. Um, I mean, Peter can't follow him now because it's not his time to die. Uh, and because he can't follow Jesus in the sense of Jesus is going to offer this sacrifice for the sins of the world. He, no one can follow him in that. He's the only one who can accomplish this. Who's the only one who's capable of, of suffering the agony that will be put upon him to propitiate sin. Um, and so Christ you know, points out here, uh, you know, before the cock, crows before the rooster crows here uh, three times, but you're going to deny me three times. Um, so Peter was going to fail in what he claimed to be. You know, I'm going to lay down my life, but he was going to actually deny the Lord, which, you know, amazing. It shows you our own depravity. Uh, the fulfillment of this prediction we'll see later in John 18. We won't turn there now. That brings us to John 14, the departure of the Lord. John 14, 1 through 15. First we see the statement of Jesus. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Remember, he's preparing them for his departure. You believe in God, believe also in me. The previous announcement that Jesus would soon depart produced a spirit of gloom and uncertainty among the disciples. It is Jesus who is heading for the agony of the cross. It is Jesus whose soul is troubled, as we saw in 1227, and who is troubled in spirit, 1321. You know, on the night of nights, when of all times it would have been appropriate for Jesus' followers to lend him, him emotional and spiritual support, he's, the only, he's the, still the one who gives comfort and instructs. Jesus urges them to calm their hearts. The way they are to do this is spelled out in the last part of the verse. You believed in God, believe also in me. You believe in God, believe also in me. So, um, so he's inviting them you know, to extend the object of their faith beyond God as they have known him. They've understood God. They, you know, they understand the Old Testament and so forth. They're trying to understand the revelation. So it extend that same faith to him as well. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not clear that from their troubled hearts that their faith in God is very secure at this point. Uh, but it's important for us to note that how Jesus is linked with the Father as an appropriate object of faith. You believe in God, believe also in me. And we know, you know, that's because he's equal with God, John 1. He is God, John 1. So uh, this, is, this is, again, him educating his followers as to who he is. I mean, we understand it all. We got it. But it's, it's a developing thing with them. They're still grasping what all this means. I mean, remember, I mean, <laughs> we, we, we're on this side and we understand the Trinity, but the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament. It's not really laid out explicitly. The Lord our God is one. You know, monotheism is the great uh, versus polytheism in the Old Testament. 
So they're trying to grasp who Jesus is, his relationship to the Father, how that works. It, it, you know, it's not easy to, to, to figure that out. Uh, verse 2, My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. The reason the disciples do not have to be troubled is now spelled out. Jesus' departure is for their advantage. Jesus announced that he was going to the Father's house, a reference to heaven. This departure would climax at the ascension, but would actually begin in a few hours with the events of Calvary. The purpose of his going was to secure access to heaven for us. It would be accomplished by his expiation of sin that Christ was, was about to make at the cross. And so just as certain as his departure would be his return. I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where, so that you also may be where I am. Um, so these sad disciples are being challenged here to look beyond, you know, this immediate disappointments that are, that are coming, that he's talking about, to this glorious future that he's talking about. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to take you to be with me so that you can be where I am. Now, I have a little note here about eschatology, about future events. Um, this verse is interesting because it suggests uh, what's called a pre-tribulational rapture. You know, we know that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about a time when Jesus returns and the saints are caught up in the air to meet him in the air and so forth, that passage and so on, called the rapture, which is just a Latin word, you know, for getting caught up. It's just the Latin of the Greek word there. Um, and so when you compare this with 1 Thessalonians 14, it sounds very similar. Uh, and it, it sounds, you know, this is, and, I, and, and this, and the way Jesus describes this sounds like the rapture occurs before the tribulation, not after the tribulation. So I say here, number one, the rapture results in our presence with Christ. That you also may be where I am, John 14, 3. And so we will ever be with the Lord forever, 14. I'm just showing here that this John 14 is talking about the rapture. The rapture results in our comfort. Don't let your hearts be troubled. 1 Thessalonians 4, therefore encourage one of these words. So there's parallels here, you know, that what we're talking about here in John 14 is the rapture. Jesus is going to come back and you'll be with him. He's going away now. I say here, Jesus says that he's going to heaven, my father's house, to prepare a room for them. The Greek word means dwelling places, dwelling place. Later Jesus will return, I will come back at the rapture and take the church back to heaven with him. Take you to be with me, he says. So I have a couple of diagrams here on, in your notes there of how this works out, how people look at this. Uh, some, believe, some evangelicals believe in what's called the post-trib rapture. Our church doctrinal statement is a pre-tribulational rapture statement. It's what we teach here is the pre-trib rapture statement. 
um, you know, when a person comes to join our church, um, you can't expect a person to know how to dot all the I's and cross all the T's. You know, you get a person saved. They don't understand all this stuff about the rapture and the pre-trib. You know, their, their knowledge of theology is pretty slim at that point if they you know, haven't been in church or anything like that. But when a person comes to our church, you know, and we interview them to be a Christian, to, to be a member, uh, you know, we, 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 we say to them, uh, uh, you know, about the rapture and all that, um, you don't have to, you know, have any certain position on this, but you cannot teach otherwise. <laughs> you, can't, you can't be a member of our church and go around discipling people on post-tribulationism. If you do that, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> you can hold it yourself, but you can't go around and, and teach what is contrary to the doctrinal position of our church. And the doctrinal position of our church is pre-tribulation, though there are many good Christians who are post-trib. We don't doubt that at all. You know, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not a position that, you know, in that sense, it's not that... Uh, that uh, there, there are levels of importance of doctrine, obviously, as we know. So uh, I was, you know, if you look at if you look at the pre-trib rapture, the rapture happens before the tribulation period, uh, and we're caught up into heaven. We're there for you know seven years with Christ, and then we're glorified. You know, we have the great white throne. I mean, the uh, the judgment seat of Christ. We have glorified bodies. We return with Him at the second advent. And he reigns you know, in his kingdom for a thousand years. But in the post-tribulation position, as you can see by that chart, um, the tribulation happens. So the church age just leads right into the tribulation. Uh, you say, I think we're in the tribulation now. <laughs> no, we're not. Yet. Uh, and so at the end of the tribulation period, the rapture takes place, but we're caught up in the air, but then we immediately return to earth. It seems rather strange, you know. So, as I say, I don't think the post-trib position fits as easily with this John 14, 3, in the sense that uh, in the post-trib position, the, uh, post position, the church does not go to the Father's house. You know, they, you know Jesus is going to prepare a place for us, his Father's house. You know, in the post-trib position, we just caught up in the air. We're right back on earth. You know, we don't really go. He doesn't really take us anywhere in that sense. You know, in fact, the, the, you know, I don't want to be too harsh here, but the rapture really doesn't have much of a reason in the post-trib position, you know, uh, because what do you need it for? Jesus comes back, sets up his kingdom. You know, what do you need the rapture for exactly? I mean, what is it, what does it ultimately accomplish um, um, what's the purpose of being caught up in the air, caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, if we're coming back immediately. So anyway, it's not absolute proof. There's no verse that says the rapture is pre-trib. If, if it was, we wouldn't have any debates you know, among good Christians here about it. But um, I think this verse, I just wanted to point out, I think it, it's a, a pretty good argument for a pre-trib rapture position. 
Verse 4, Jesus says, You know the way to the place where I am going. I say, ultimately, the disciples do know the way to heaven because they know him. And Jesus will make clear exactly what he means in verse 6 when we get there. Well, here's Thomas's problem concerning the way. Thomas said to him, uh, Lord, uh, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Thomas questioned the accuracy of Jesus' statement in verse 4. Thomas appears in the gospel as a loyal, even a courageous disciple. Remember earlier we saw when Jesus said, I'm going to go to meet Lazarus, and the disciples say, man, they'll kill you when you get to Jerusalem. And Thomas says, man, I'll go with you. I'm willing, very courageous. But he's got apprehensions. He's got doubts, as we see later on. His question sounds as if it's interpreted Jesus' words in the most literal way possible. You know, he's going physically somewhere, you know, uh, he thinks he's going to some other geographical location. Remember, earlier in the Gospel of John, we saw when he was speaking to the crowds at the festival, he says, I'm going to go where you can't come. And the Jews say, where is he going to go? Out to the diaspora? Is he going out to Ephesus or somewhere? I mean, what's he, what's he talking about? And Thomas has that same geographical, physical idea here in his mind. Um, um, I mean, he didn't want to discuss the way until he knew the destination. <laughs> we don't know where you're going. How, what's, the, what's the point of knowing, you know, I don't need the directions until I know where we're headed to, right? I mean, you know, tell me where we're headed to before we get the directions. Verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The answer of Jesus was, I'm the way. You know, here's the way, Thomas. And he also made it clear that the destination was the Father. He did not say that he came to show the way, but that he himself was the actual means for bringing people to God. Jesus is the way to God precisely because he is the truth of God and the life of God. Jesus is the truth because he embodies the supreme revelation of God. He is the life because, as we've seen, in him was life. He has life in himself. He is the resurrection and the life. Verse 7, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Jesus says that his disciples do not know him in the fullest sense. Um, if you really... If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. So I'm just saying they don't really know him as fully as they can and should and will. If they did, they would realize they knew the Father as well. Jesus explained, from now on you do know him and have seen him. So they didn't, they didn't know the Father and they had seen him because they had seen Jesus who was with the Father, who embodied the full revelation of the Father. Um, so if you, Jesus, if you really knew me, if you really understood, as I say, it's pretty easy for us. We understand the Trinity. So we, got, we get it. But they don't fully grasp how is he related to God. You know, he's the Messiah. What does all that mean? He's, he's really laying it out here, but it's pretty tough to, to grasp. From now on, oh, 
these things will become clearer uh, as we go along. C, Philip's problem concerning the Father, 14, 8 through 11. Jesus said, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. At one level, Philip and the others truly do know Jesus and therefore the Son. Therefore in the Son they have seen the Father, but they do not recognize this yet. As highly as they think of Jesus, they do not grasp that in Jesus God has made himself known. To the extent that this is still beyond them, they do not know Jesus himself very well. So Philip asks for direct access. You know, he says, if I could see the Father in clear and unmistakable form, then, you know, he and others would be content. Jesus answered, verse 9, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus' question seems to be tinged with sadness, despite the fact that Jesus had lived among his disciples for a long time. They still did not know who he really was fully and completely. So Jesus makes it you know, pretty clear, abundantly clear. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. All of his actions and words up to this point have demonstrated that truth. That's what John is being laying out in his Gospels. But the, the disciples are still just not quite there yet. Now when we get to the day of Pentecost and we read what's their proclamation and their preaching, we'll see they do. They do under, start understanding it. Verse 10, Don't you believe that I am in the Father, the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak of my own authority, rather it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Jesus' question, don't you believe, presupposes that all the disciples ought to believe that Jesus is in the Father, the Father is in him. This mutual indwelling, as it's often called, mutual indwelling, the the members of the Godhead mutually indwell each other, is a linguistic way of describing the complete unity between the Jesus, Jesus and the Father, and of course the Holy Spirit is in there too, obviously, which was articulated elsewhere in a statement such as, I and the Father are one, John 10, 30. So the members of the Trinity are never at odds with each other. Um, even though the members of the Trinity are said to perform a certain action, you know, sometimes. The Father does this, the Son does this. The other members of the Trinity are always a part of that action. There's only one will in God. And theologians talk about this mutual indwelling, and they're getting that from this kind of language here. I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, this kind of thing. Um, and so... We talk about, let's, let's, I mean, to stress this point about every person of the Trinity is really involved in every action. Now, certain actions are overwhelmingly attributed to certain persons of the Trinity. For instance, you know, we are, uh, we are indwelt by the Spirit. Uh, the, the, the New Testament uh, talks uh, a lot and primarily about we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But, uh, you know, John 14 describes this indwelling to all three persons 
um, John 14, we'll get to here in a moment, 16 through 18. I will ask the Father, he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. So he'll be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Uh, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. So he'll be with you, I'll be with you. John 14, 23, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. So, yeah, we attribute the indwelling to the Spirit, but it's really all the persons are represented in that indwelling. Um, you know, so, uh, so there is a, there's a way the Trinity functions, you know, uh, there's a functional relationship in the Trinity. We, and we talk about ontology. Ontology has to do with being. So all three persons are equal in essence, power, glory, honor. They're all God and all that. But they function in different ways. Um, and we're taught in Scripture to respect that function to a certain extent. Uh, normally, let's talk about prayer. Normally we uh, pray to the Father uh, by the Spirit through the Son, or something, you know, that kind of formula. Uh, Ephesians 2.18, For in Him we have access to the Father by one Spirit. So that, 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 that uh, terminology is repeated a number of times in Scripture, that the Father is the one who orders and commands, and, and the, the, it's, it's done on the basis of the work of the Son, and the Spirit carries it out, and so forth. There's this function, the way that the Trinity functions. We have access to the Father by the Spirit. So he's talking about prayer there. We pray to God by means of the Spirit. But in John 14, he'll say, You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So you can pray directly to Jesus. You can have direct prayers to Jesus. You know, one of the things uh, when I taught at the seminary, for years one of the most terrifying things for graduates was they had a senior doctrinal exam. So the last thing before they graduated was a senior, and they had all the faculty in there, you know. And they loved to ask these trick questions, these, you know, these difficult questions, you know. We had a whole bunches of them that were just, I still got them there, just tricky things, you know. Well, you know, one of them is, can you pray to the Holy Spirit? Can you pray to the Holy Spirit? Oh, man. You know, because Jesus said, you know, they said, teach us to pray. Pray. And Jesus said, pray. And he said, in Matthew, he said, well, pray our Father who is in heaven. You know, pray to your Father, you know. Well, can you pray to the Holy Spirit? You know, is that okay? You know, and well... It looks like you can pray to Jesus there, John 14, 14, doesn't it? You know, the truth is you can pray to all three persons, any person. They're all God. But normally we pray to the Father. Sometimes we'll say our prayer, uh, Father, please do, you know, we'll, we'll pray to the Father. That's the normal order. But it's, it's not, uh, there, are, there are many places in Scripture, where there are a number of places where there are direct prayers to the Son. Um, and presumably prayers to the Spirit are acceptable too. Um, so the Father plans, the Son executes, the Spirit uh, maintains. Uh, you know, these are not strictly segregated functions, but 
that's how it normally operates. I mean, even in creation, you got the Holy Spirit, you know, in Genesis creating that we have God, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth, but the spirit of God is there, you know, and Colossians 1.17, he, Jesus, is before all things. In him, all things hold together. The sun's the radiance of God's glory, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So he's involved in sustaining creation. And, you know, so all the persons of Trinity are involved in this. Uh, so um, it's the Father, he says here, living in me and doing his work. They're all working together. And as I say, this is what's very difficult for the disciples at this point to process and figure all this out. Verse 11, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Jesus asked the disciples to believe what he's just said is true, which he then summarized, I am in the Father, the Father is in me. If they still find it difficult to penetrate the meaning of his words, at the very least, they should believe on the evidence of the works, his miracles themselves. Um, Jesus' point is not simply that displays of supernatural power frequently prove convincing, but that miracles themselves are signs. They're signs of something. And so if you think about what's happening with the raising of Lazarus, you know, that should tell you something about Jesus, you know. You know, if somebody comes around here and starts raising the dead, I'm going to take note, you know. <laughs> That's going to say something. Those, those miracles, that, that'll mean something. And they should take note of that. Privileges of the disciples, 14, 12 through 15. Very truly I tell you that whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. So in light of Christ's departure, two privileges are explained as encouragements for the disciples. First, they are granted the privilege of performing greater works, greater things. They will do greater things than what I've just been talking about. This certainly did not mean that the believers would perform more amazing physical miracles than Jesus, stilling you know, the storm, feeding the 5,000. The answer here to this puzzle, because, you know, this is a puzzle. What do you mean? We're going to do greater things than what Jesus did while he was on earth? How could that possibly be true? And, and the reason it's possible is because Jesus says, because I'm returning to the Father. So the works that I think Jesus is talking about, the best understanding of this I think we can come up with, is we're talking about spiritual accomplishments um, in which the, you know, the good news of Christ's death and his resurrection would be, uh, a, would be proclaimed and this would transform sinful men. Um, you know, as a consequence of Jesus' death, what's, what he's done, what, he's do, what he will do, uh, Gentiles as well as Jews, would be uh, reached in a new spiritual body, the church. These are tremendous works. I mean, think about the raising of Lazarus. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, which is a great miracle, but he died, you know. <laughs> Peter got up and preached on Pentecost. 3,000 people were saved, and they're living forever. You know, in a sense, that's a greater work 
than what Jesus did in that sense, a greater spiritual work. It's based upon the fact that uh, he's going to the Father. That is, he's going to die, raise, go to the Father, and then the church will be formed and greater things will be accomplished uh, spiritually. I don't want to sound uh, uh, too heretical here, but... <laughs> so, you know, as far as spiritual accomplishments, you know, more people have been saved since Jesus died than, you know, Jesus was here saving people. He saved uh, some people. Some people were saved during his ministry, but the great salvation came after what, his, what he accomplished through his death and resurrection. That laid the foundation. The fact he's going to the Father... That really allows the church to do greater things, greater things. Verse 13, And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. The second privilege in prayer is Jesus in Jesus' name. It's prayer in Jesus' name. Jesus lent his name to the believers to use in their petitions to the Father. We may ask on his merits with all of his personal influence as our great high priest at our disposal. Of course, prayer in Jesus' name must be consistent with, God, with Christ's character. In Jesus' name is not a ritualistic formula that automatically ensures a favorable response. Rather, prayer will be honored when it's made in the atmosphere of obedience to our Lord's commands. So here in verse 14, Jesus uh, says that we may ask in his name. In 15, 16, he'll say, uh, Whoever you may, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. As I said, prayer is normally directed to the Father. Matthew 6, uh, Jesus says, This then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. So normally it's directed to the Father, but as we said, it can be directed directly to the Son. As he says here, you may ask me for anything. Um, in any case, we're asking in the Son's name. And that means, you know, when I prayed at the end of my prayer, I said, I ask this in Jesus' name. It's not some magic little formula, you know. It's, it's, I'm asking it based upon the authority of Christ, based upon what Christ has accomplished. I'm, a, I'm, 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 I'm asking for access and answer to this prayer because... I'm in Christ, and Christ has given me the authority to come and ask, and he's accomplished things. And so as long as we ask consistent with his character, consistent with his program, what he wants to accomplish, he will do it. Whatever you ask, uh, he'll say in John 15, and my Father, in my name my Father will give you. Well, we see then in 14, 20, 16 through 26, the promise of the Spirit, the description of the Spirit, 16 through 70, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. So the Holy Spirit is promised by Jesus and will be given by the Father at the request of the Son. Two names designate the Spirit in these verses. He's called the Advocate here in the NIV, uh, Helper in the ESV, 
you know, comforter in the King James, the word, Greek word parakletos. It's also used of Jesus in 1 John 2.1. My dear children, I write to you that you do not sin, but if anyone does, we have an advocate. We have a parakletos with the Father, Jesus, the righteous one. Conveys the ideas of or strengthener, encourager, advocate, helper, a number of ideas, depending on the context. The other name is the spirit of truth. Truth was likewise a designation of Christ. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth. So the spirit who was promised by Jesus as the one who was take, taking his place uh, is called by two names elsewhere used of Jesus himself. Now, as I say here, there's considerable debate as to the meaning of this last phrase in verse 17. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. He lives with you and will be in you. There's no question in the present church age that all believers are permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, I might pause for a moment and say, what does that word indwelt mean? <laughs> That's not easy. If you think about it in the sense that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, if he's omnipresent, that means he's indwelling everybody on the face of the earth, in a sense. He's present everywhere, even in unbelievers, you know. So it means something more than that, you know. It means that he is functioning or actuating, he's working in us in a way that he's not in other, in, other, in other human beings or other creatures or anything like that. There's some special way in which the Holy Spirit is working, and, and that we call that indwelling uh, as a way to, to speak about that. Uh, so there's no question that we are indwelt. We have this special ministry of the Spirit. All believers do. One common understanding of the Holy Spirit's ministry holds the Old Testament saints were not permanently indwelt by the Spirit, but this indwelling was only experienced by some Old Testament believers and could be taken away. David prays in Psalm 51, 11, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now that's how I was taught when I was first saved. and I went to school, I went to seminary, I went <laughs> almost all the way through seminary. I mean, I went all the way through a couple of master's degrees. That's what I was taught. That's kind of a standard, we might say dispensational teaching that uh, Old Testament believers were not permanently indwelt, that some of them had the spirit, but it wasn't permanent and it could be taken away, and here's David, you know, he's saying, don't take this spirit from me. But I don't hold that position now, and, and you won't find anybody on our staff that holds that position, mainly because at the, at the seminary, Detroit Baptist Seminary, no, no one holds that position. And it's not as common as it used to be. Um, um, as I say here, we know that in the present church age, every believer is permanently indwelt, uh, is permanently indwelt by the Spirit, it should say there. You know, Romans 8, 9, um, if anyone does not have the Spirit, they don't belong to Christ. Ephesians 4, 30, you're sealed by the Spirit until the day of redemption, you know. So we don't question that. 
And thus verse 17 is understood by some to be a promise that in the future disciples will be indwelt. This promise is then fulfilled with the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which marked the beginning of the church, resulting in all church saints being permanently indwelt by the Spirit. So that's a, that's a common interpretation of in the first part of my life. And, and you know, it's, 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 it's very common. It's, uh, so it, it's, it's certainly a well-represented position. Now, why would I give up on that? Uh, next paragraph. Why would I not say that? Why would the seminary where I taught not teach that? Why would, why would a lot of people not teach that now? However, the idea that Old Testament saints were not indwelt by the Spirit creates, I think, some serious theological problems. The nature of regeneration, being born again, new spiritual life, requires an inward work of the Spirit who imparts and sustains life. Regeneration is being born of the Spirit, remember? Without the Spirit, spiritual life and spiritual growth is impossible. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. So what about Old Testament saints? But considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So uh, I remember in the past, uh, even when I was doing doctoral work at Grace Seminary, uh, this wasn't discussed much, but I can remember hearing somebody say, well, there's different positions on Old Testament saints. Some say they're regenerated, but they're not indwelt by the Spirit. And some say, <laughs> I don't know, they're indwelt by the Spirit, not regenerated. I don't know. They're different. They're different. It, was, it was hard. To, how do you understand Old Testament saints, especially in light of this verse and the idea that, you know, I'm going to give you the Spirit and he comes on the day of Pentecost and, you know, and all that and David saying all this. I say here, I believe that verse 14 is not referring to the Spirit's indwelling of believers, but with a special ministry of the Spirit to the disciples that is sometimes called apostolic anointing. Let me just go back for a point and say, the problem with that theological problem is, you, you just have to have the Spirit to have spiritual life. You have to have the Spirit to grow, 1 Corinthians 2.14, to understand the things of God. So if you're an Old Testament saint, if you're saved, salvation and the Spirit just go together. It's, it's really tough to separate those two, that, that. It's very hard to see how you can have salvation, you can have spiritual growth and all that without the Spirit and so forth. Okay, well then, what is this like David talking about? Well, I think verse 14 here is talking about uh, sometimes called apostolic anointing. What is that? This special anointing to disciples will take place in John 20, 21 through 23. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This ministry of the Spirit will prepare the, his apostles for their upcoming task of establishing the new church age and especially their task of receiving new revelation for the coming age. The anointing is similar to what is called the theocratic anointing, which is a special ministry of the Holy Spirit given to various leaders in the Old Testament like David. So, what, what I think is going on, what many think is going on, is that in the Old Testament, that, that there is this talk about the Spirit coming and going. Uh, but what it's talking about is a special anointing that was anointing that was given to the head of the mediatorial kingdom or given to the head of Israel. And it, it didn't have anything to do with the salvation of the person necessarily. Uh, it was first given to Moses. 
Moses was given the spirit to rule over Israel. Uh, and then Moses uh, gave some of that spirit, it says, Numbers 11, to the 70 elders. Uh, he says, I will take the spirit who is upon you, God says, and put them on them, the 70 elders, Numbers 11, 17. And, they will, and so they'll share your burden. So that spiritual anointing that God took from Moses, I'm going to put some of that on these elders, that'll enable them to help you and rule. It's transferred to Joshua. Uh, Joshua 30, I mean, De Deuteronomy 34, 9. Uh, Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the wisdom, the spirit of wisdom, after Moses laid hands on him. So Moses lands hands on him. He receives this theocratic anointing. Um, it's given to the judges, the various verses in the judges. It's given to Saul. Immediately when Saul was anointed, it says in 1 Samuel, Saul was changed. He became another man. He prophesied. Um, so uh, I think it's best to understand that Saul was not regenerated. He was not a regenerated person. And this anointing left Saul and came to David. Samuel took that horn of oil. He anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Lord came mightily upon David, you know, from that day forward. It says the Spirit of God departed from Saul and the evil spirit came upon him. Uh, the, anointing, the anointing threatened to leave David. David, because of his sin, prays, don't cast me from your presence. Don't take that Holy Spirit from me. That's that theocratic anointing. He's not asking for God to keep him saved. So that's a long discussion about that, but... I'm saying another way to understand all this, and it's a difficult problem, is to think that Jesus is promising something special for the apostles. They need something to carry them through this death and resurrection, all that they have to accomplish. They need an anointing of the Holy Spirit that we'll see in John 20, 21, as I, I read there to you. Um, which I jumped over here. Um, and uh, with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So we'll talk about that. But I think, that, I think that's better. It creates less problems than saying that Old Testament saints didn't have the Holy Spirit, were not indwelt by the Spirit. That's a difficult thing to understand how they could have spiritual life and growth and maturity and sanctification without the Holy Spirit. Seems to, it seems clear that Regeneration, being born again, is something done by the Spirit, and therefore you have to have the Spirit. All right, sorry to take you so long. We'll stop here tonight, Lord willing, and we'll pick you up. Not next week, that's right. Next week we're off. We got the break, right? So two weeks from tonight. Thanks a lot.